Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Dara, and I'm going to highlight what to look for in the sky in June in this cosmic diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. As we welcome the return of the warmer weather and long summer days, stargazing becomes a bit more challenging. The sun only just drops below our horizon at night, which means that of the few nighttime hours available for stargazing, most of them are in twilight. Although this makes observing fainter objects all the more difficult, there are still a number of things up in the sky this month for stargazers to enjoy. Scorpius is one of the few constellations in the night sky that resembles its namesake. Although the tail of the scorpion is hidden from view at our latitude, there's still plenty left of the scorpion for us to look at. If you have a clear view towards the south, look in that direction and you'll spot the scorpion. Search for the red-coloured star Antares, the brightest star in Scorpius, and the star that marks the heart of the scorpion. Because of its red colour, Antares is often confused with the planet Mars. In fact, the name Antares roughly translates as anti-Aries, or rival of Mars. Grab a pair of binoculars or a telescope and look to the right of Antares and you'll see the globular cluster M4. This star cluster is home to over 100,000 stars, and some of these stars are between 12 to 13 billion years old. Winding its way around the constellation of Ursa Minor is the constellation of Draco the Dragon. Thousands of years ago, if you wanted to use the stars to find north, you would have used the brightest star in Draco, a star called Thuban, rather than Polaris, a star in Ursa Minor and the star that we use today. Our Earth spins on its axis, and that axis is tilted by an angle of 23.5 degrees to the ecliptic. Now if you follow this axis from the northern hemisphere up into the sky, it currently points towards Polaris. But due to a 25,800 year wobble of the Earth's axis, known as precession, the position where the axis points to in space is constantly changing, and thousands of years ago it pointed to Thuban. This precession means that Polaris will not always be the pole star, and around 12,000 years from now, the star Vega in the constellation of Lyra will be the pole star. After dominating the western sky for a couple of months, Venus reaches inferior conjunction on June the 3rd, and the planet will lie between the Earth and the Sun. But don't worry, Venus won't be gone from our skies for too long. From mid-June, Venus will return to the dawn sky and will be visible before the Sun rises. On June the 4th, the planet Mercury reaches greatest eastern elongation, which means that from our point of view on the Earth, Mercury appears at its furthest point east of the Sun in its orbit. Being the innermost planet, Mercury is often lost in the glare of the Sun, so this is the best time to see that planet. Look towards the western horizon just after sunset. Mercury will lie low above the horizon, so will still be a challenge to spot. For stargazers up in the early hours of the morning, look towards the south to see the planetary trio of Mars, Saturn and Jupiter. Now the moon begins this month in its waxing gibbous phase, with the full moon occurring on June the 5th. Each month's full moon has a name, and many of the names of the full moons have come to us from Native American culture. 
The June full moon is known as the strawberry moon because the appearance of the full moon in June was a signal to tribes to begin harvesting and ripening the fruits of wild strawberries. New moon occurs on June 21st, and if you have a pair of binoculars or a telescope and you want to see some of the breathtaking features on the lunar surface, wait for a few days after new moon and look at the waxing crescent moon. If you aim your view at the terminator, the dividing line between day and night on the moon, you'll be able to see shadows falling inside the lunar craters. The sun reaches its most northerly point on its path through the sky on June 20th. Known as the summer solstice, it is the day in the year with the longest hours of daylight and the shortest hours of night, and it also marks the beginning rather than the midpoint of summer, according to the astronomical calendar. When the northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun, it receives more direct sunlight and for a longer portion of the day, resulting in an increase in temperature. How the atmosphere and more importantly the oceans take time to heat up, this results in a considerable lag between the summer solstice and the peak of the warm weather. This is why the summer solstice is considered to be the start of the summer months, with June, July and August the summer months. Now if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome back to the Cosmic News part of the podcast. In this part of our podcast, we pick a new story that's broken in the astronomical world in the past month or so and uh, delve into that story a little deeper. Now, over the past few months, I've been picking new stories that have been related to uh, age-old questions of the universe. Now, perhaps it's not an age-old question for this month, but it's definitely a cosmic chicken-and-the-egg problem that I've found. This is one of the, the last great mysteries of the early universe. You see, scientists have determined that there's a supermassive black hole at the centre of almost every galaxy in the universe. But we're not quite sure how they got there. What's the relationship between these huge monster black holes and the galaxies that surround them? I guess the underlying question is, which came first? The galaxies? or the supermassive black holes that we find lurking at their hearts. Now before we delve into that question, we're going to look into a new scientific paper that was released in the last month. It's connected to this, the idea of supermassive black holes and galaxies. And this is the paper that steered this podcast to that big cosmic chicken and the egg question. Now I should start off by perhaps uh, giving a general introduction into black holes. So black holes are these uh, elusive objects in our universe. They're incredibly dense. Black holes are lots of material essentially crammed into a very, very small space. Now there are different types of black holes. The more common one, the one that we might be more familiar with perhaps, are stellar black holes. They're formed uh, when a large star ends its life, its core collapses, creating a black hole. And those black holes contain roughly 10 to 50 times the mass of the sun. Black holes have an immense gravitational pull. And that means that they can pull in material around them. You do have to get very close to the black hole, to a boundary known as the event horizon. And once you pass that boundary, that's when, even if you were traveling at the speed of light, you would not be able to escape the gravitational pull of that black hole. 
Now, even though these stellar black holes seem absolutely massive, we're talking about 10 to 50 times the mass of the sun, they are nothing in comparison to the supermassive black holes that lie at the centre of most galaxies in the universe. Some of these supermassive black holes have millions, if not billions of times the mass of our sun crammed into an incredibly small space. And they're the ones that we're considering in this uh, news story, these supermassive black holes lying at the hearts of galaxies. Now, the news story I've chosen this month is about finding the connection between the supermassive black holes and those galaxies that they lie in. We already actually know that their masses are correlated, but we want to explore the connection between that. So studies of galaxies have already shown that the black holes lying at the centre of the galaxies, at least the galaxies in our nearby universe, they've revealed a very intriguing connection between the masses of those objects. So the ratio between the black hole's mass, the mass of that supermassive black hole lying at the centre of the galaxy, compared with the mass of the bulge of the galaxy. So that's the central region of the galaxy where most of the stars and gas are. So the ratio between those two is nearly the same for a wide range of galaxies that we observe in the nearby universe. So a range of galaxies, so we're talking about different sized galaxies and including different aged galaxies, that ratio is pretty constant. So the black hole's mass, the supermassive black hole at the centre of the galaxy, is usually about one one-thousandth of the mass of the surrounding galactic bulge. And it's true for supermassive black holes that are a few million times to even a few billion times the mass of our sun. And the idea that we have this constant ratio between the mass of the black hole compared to the mass of the galaxy it lives in, that indicates that the black hole and the bulge of the galaxy must affect each other's growth in some sort of interactive relationship. Now this new study has helped reveal part of the answer about how galaxies and supermassive black holes are connected. And it was conducted by an undergraduate researcher called Rebecca Minsley. She participated in the Institute for Astronomy's 2019 Research Experiences for Undergraduates program. In this program, she worked alongside her mentor for about 10 weeks. Her mentor was Mauna Kea's spectroscopic explorer, deputy project scientist, Andrea Petrick. Now, the Institute for Astronomy has been part of this very prestigious program, this Research Experiences for Undergraduates, for about 20 years. And over that time, it's trained over 130 students, and some of those students are now leaders in their own fields of astronomy. So the focus of this undergraduate program, this research experience program, is on identifying students who have the potential to succeed in research, but may not have the opportunity and the resources to do so. So if there's any aspiring researchers out there, it might be something for you to look into if you haven't heard about it before. So we know that the masses of the supermassive black hole and the galaxy which it lives in are correlated, but how are they connected? Now here's what the study found. Galaxy growth might actually be shaped by the interactions with other galaxies, and that contributes to the supermassive black hole that grows within its galaxy's centre. So let's delve into that a little bit. Now the interstellar medium, that's the gas and the dust that spread throughout the galaxy, it's the fuel for both the supermassive black hole that grows at the centre, and it's the fuel for the formation of new stars, that's what stars are made of. 
Now, recent work has shown that the interstellar medium may have different properties in galaxies that have a growing supermassive black hole at their centre, a feeding supermassive black hole, compared to the galaxies that don't. And of note is that the interstellar medium is actually warmer in the galaxies that have a feeding supermassive black hole. So galaxies that have these active supermassive black holes tend to have warmer gas, warmer interstellar mediums. Now the gas needs to be cool for stars to form. And that means that in these galaxies there's less star formation. Perhaps a growing supermassive black hole therefore reduces star formation. Alternatively, we could think about the idea that galaxies interacting produce very large-scale shockwaves. And when they do, those shockwaves can compress the less dense gas, bringing it closer and closer together, making it more likely to form stars. So stars are formed when that gas and dust comes together. From those newly formed hot stars, that starlight could be what is heating the interstellar medium, causing it to be warmer. So which is it? Well, Minsley, the undergraduate researcher, she classified over 600 galaxies working with her mentor and the team there by looking at their shapes. So she classified different galaxies into whether they were mergers, early mergers, or non-mergers. And then she compared the shapes of these galaxies to the light that they were outputting, the light that they were giving out. But we're not talking about visible light here. The light that she was looking at was longer mid-infrared wavelengths, and that would allow her to study the properties of the interstellar medium. So the gas and the dust in the interstellar medium emits infrared light. So it shows us things that we wouldn't be able to see using normal visible light. Remember, infrared light is used to give an indication of temperature, and that's one of the things they found. By looking at these galaxies with active supermassive black holes, they found the interstellar medium is warmer. The ratios of warm molecular hydrogen compared to some other hydrocarbons is actually larger. So there's more of that warm molecular hydrogen gas. And there's other features from dust particles. Uh, they have a wider range of different values than in galaxies that have a dormant supermassive black hole. Basically, they found there are differences in the gas and dust profiles between galaxies that have and don't have an active supermassive black hole. Now, in the nearby universe, the warm interstellar medium of the galaxies with the growing supermassive black holes at their centres differs from those that don't. The cause? Well, it's believed to be gravitational interaction between galaxies and it affects the molecular gas and dust. So as these galaxies interact and merge, it actually has an effect on the gas and the dust in the interstellar medium within those galaxies. So they concluded that galaxy mergers, so galaxies merging together, produce shock waves which heat the gas in the galaxies and this heating prevents star formation. Like we said, when the gas is hot, that material cannot come together as much and hold together to form the stars. But the fact that that material does not go into forming stars allows that gas to flow into the supermassive black hole instead. It's triggering black hole growth in step with the galaxies themselves growing through this merger. So the galaxies themselves are getting bigger, 
by colliding and merging, and in turn, by doing so, the shock waves produced heat the gas, stop stars forming, but instead allow that material to fall into the supermassive black hole. This is the first step in developing this clean, neat solution that astronomers have been looking for. Now, the research scientists speculate that the same processes, so the idea of these galaxies merging, that funnel the fuel to the supermassive black hole, is also responsible for the warming of the interstellar medium. But they're not quite sure just how yet. In the future, hopefully more detailed observations will allow researchers to confirm these energy transfer processes that are taking place. So we're starting to better understand how galaxies and their supermassive black holes are connected. But the question is, which came first? Now we already said that there's a constant ratio that we observe in many galaxies regarding their masses. It indicates that the black holes lying at the centres of these galaxies, these supermassive black holes, and the bulges of these galaxies do affect each other's growth in some sort of interactive way. But the real question is, do the galaxies form first and then the black holes spring up in the centre? Or possibly, do the galaxies form around an already existing supermassive black hole? The general consensus is that you start with a galaxy. So there's a lot of stuff in a galaxy, there's plenty of gas and dust, and that stuff is going to interact with itself and may even fall into the middle where the gravity is the strongest, where it's pulling it in. And if there is a supermassive black hole, the gas and the dust will go into it and basically grow its mass. And this leads to a really nice theoretical prediction, that there's a correlation between the amount of mass in the supermassive black hole and the amount of mass in the galaxy. A supermassive black hole can't be bigger than the amount of material available, so the supermassive black hole only has a certain amount of fuel based on the size of that galaxy. It leads to this nice relationship. But there have been some black holes in very young galaxies, so those that exist in the first billion years after the Big Bang, and those supermassive black holes are much more massive compared to the bulges of the galaxies they reside in, compared to those seen in galaxies in the nearby universe. Some of these supermassive black holes in the young galaxies are a hundred times larger than what we'd expected. And the implication of that is that the black holes probably started growing first. Or maybe it's just an anomalous result. There are billions of galaxies in the universe, so there's got to be some weird oddballs out there. Maybe we just don't understand right now the physical processes that could allow that to happen. So maybe something happened to feed these black holes at an enormous rate and then the galaxy assembled around it. Or maybe galaxies did form first, and we just don't understand the mechanisms, the physics of forming these huge monster supermassive black holes yet, the ones that existed in the young galaxies that sprung up just a few billion years after the Big Bang. Now in recent years, astronomers have developed two models. They call the top-down and bottom-up. Now, the top-down model suggests that you have one big event, and it leads to the structure of the universe that we have today. So an entire galactic supercluster formed all at once out of a huge cloud of primordial hydrogen that was left over after the birth of the universe. 
Now, a supercluster's worth of stars began forming at the same time, and as it did, it spun and it kicked out some of the smaller spiral galaxies and some dwarf galaxies, and they could have later combined to form the more complex structures that we see today. The idea is that the supermassive black holes would have formed as the dense cores of these galaxies came together and interacted. Alternatively, the bottom-up model suggests that small parts come together to form bigger things. So pockets of gas and dust are collected together and they form larger and larger masses pulled together by gravity. Eventually, they would form those smaller spiral galaxies, some dwarf galaxies, and eventually the clusters and superclusters that we see today. Now, the supermassive black holes at the heart of these galaxies were grown from collisions and mergers between black holes over time. Bottom-up is a bit alike to how we believe planets in our solar system were thought to be made. Now, the early universe had slight variations in its density. Material and energy from the Big Bang flew out in all directions, but not uniformly. So gravity is pulling things together and the expansion of the universe driving things apart. Objects grow, but their size is decided by the balancing point of gravity and expansion. And this would be different for different places in the universe because of those slight variations in density. And that's why we've got the structure we see today. Now, if small pieces were able to come together, then you'd get that bottom-up formation. But if large pieces were able to come together, it's more likely you'd get top-down formation. Looking on the larger scales, we do observe clusters and superclusters as far as we can see, and that supports the top-down model. But observations show us that the first stars formed just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, and this instead supports the bottom-up model. Right now, it seems most likely that the structure of the universe we see today formed bottom up. So the first stars came together to create proto-galaxies and died creating supernova to form the first stellar black holes. And the structure of the universe we see today is the end result of billions of years of formation and destruction and these supermassive black holes coming together over time. So it seems that the leading theory right now is that galaxies formed first, and through galactic interactions, merging of galaxies, supermassive black holes then grew at their centres. But to really understand how the universe got to the way it is today, we've got to try and understand how the first stars and galaxies were formed when the universe was young. And that involves looking far back into the universe, which is tricky work. Once telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope get to work, we should be able to see these bits coming together at the very edge of the observable universe. So large telescopes like this will allow us to see further away and witness the youngest galaxies in the universe to see how they formed and whether a supermassive black hole already lies at their centre or not. Now we'd love to know what you all think. We will put our cosmic chicken in the egg question up on our Twitter poll at the start of the month. So which came first, the galaxies or the supermassive black holes that lay at their centers? So if you go to our Twitter page at ROG Astronomers at the start of the month, we'd love to know what you think. Do take part in our poll. Thanks to all of you who took part in last month's poll, it looks like Europa, one of Jupiter's moons, was probably the most popular choice for the best place to search for extraterrestrial life in our solar system. 
Now don't forget to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog. It's a written account uh, with images of what to see and find in the night sky over June. And you can find that on our website, rmg.co.uk. And if you can't get enough astronomy in your lives, then we've also recently launched our YouTube channel where you'll find animated videos, tales from the observatory's history and discussions on burning topics. That's it for our podcast for this month, though. Happy stargazing, and we'll see you all next month for more Look Up. Mm-hmm.